The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Sports Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericasports.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Ticking Stock with Kelly McMillan. If the name sounds like a business show to you, then you've got it all wrong. Kelly McMillan is the principal of McMillan Fiberglass Stocks and will talk about shooting for fun, competition, hunting, and self-defense. Now, here is your host, Kelly McMillan. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the show today. Looking forward to having our guests on. Um, I'm here joined by my special partner, Zev the Wolf Nadler, uh, who's the owner and operator of Firearms Concierge and the best dronage.com. So if you have any dronage needs and, and you need somebody that can uh, actually legally fly and uh, do some droning, uh, contact him. Thank you, Kelly. And uh, I think I got that special today because uh, at the dart game last night, I lost big time and uh, to you. And so that's why I'm special today. But I also wanted to uh, introduce... Uh, our social media director. Um, she is here today watching what we're doing today, making sure we do it right. Her name is Cooper Ballestrino. And Cooper, why don't you say hello? Hi, guys. I'm happy to be in the studio today. So we're going to talk about this promotion that we're doing right now. Uh, it's it's going to be a giveaway. You email me at k.mcmillan at USA at a designated time, and I'll let you know when that is. And the first four emails that I receive will will get a, a, a prize. The The first, first email in will get a polo shirt with a McMillan logo on it. The second email in will get a t-shirt, McMillan t-shirt. The next will be a McMillan hat. And the fourth person in will get a McMillan challenge coin. So it's just a way to see who's listening to me out there uh, live. And uh, if you are, you'll get rewarded for it. So remember, when I tell you, Email me at k.mcmillan at mcmillanusa.com. So now that's out of the way. Thanks, Cooper. I think this is going to be a great promotion. It'll be fun. Um, I, I want to introduce our first guest. Uh, his name is Bud Mills. He owns Gunsight. And if, if you know anything about firearms and firearms training in the Arizona area and pretty much around the country, you know about Gunsight. And you probably know very little but about Buzz Mills because he's done an awesome job of of developing Gunsight into one of the premier training facilities in the country. Buzz, thanks for being on the show. I appreciate it. Thank you. Well, uh, you know, like I said, uh, unless you do a very good job of of running the business and and staying out of the limelight, that's kind of unusual for for big businesses. It seems like a a lot of the uh, major principals in these companies want to be in the front and, and let everybody know who they are. But I think you've done this just by being a very good businessman. Why don't you do us a favor and give us a little bit about your history, where you grew up, what kind of education you have, how you got into a position where you purchased uh, Gunsight? Oh, man, I'll tell you what, uh, we, we, only, we only have two hours here, Kelly, so I just can't give you a whole lot of detail. 
<laughs> yeah, that um, two hours will seem like 25 minutes before you're done. All right. Well, uh, my father was a uh, World War II vet, and uh, he stayed in the Navy after uh, after World War II. And so I grew up uh, traveling around the countryside uh, in uh, southern Virginia, uh, graduated from high school there, went to the Marine Corps, um, did four years in there, went to uh, a couple of years of college, ran out of money, uh, that sort of thing. So I was going around trying to raise money. You know, back in the day, in the, in the early 60s, there wasn't any... Uh, there wasn't any college loans, you know, and so uh, I was I was talking to this one banker, and he said, "Well, what kind of collateral do you have?" And I said, "Collateral? You know, I don't have any collateral. I, you know, I'm a college student, just got out of the out of the service. Uh, my folks had moved, my mother died, uh, so it was uh, I was on my own, you know. Uh, and uh, I said, "I don't have any collateral." And he, I, he said, "Well, I can't give you any money," and I said, "Well." I don't know what I'm going to do if I can't if I can't find some money. Go to college. He looked at me and said, "Well, son, why don't you just get a job?" And the rest is history. So um, I uh, I went and worked in uh, heavy construction, and then uh, moved from that to communications. After about six years, went in business for myself. Built that up. Got uh, involved in cellular before it got off the ground. Got started. Did a lot of work in that, um, and uh, one thing that uh, that I always did was I tried to bring along the youngsters, you know, the young folks, and uh, put them to work and teach them how to do business and uh, that sort of thing. So my whole life I've been training people, and my whole life since uh, since being in the service was uh, involved with firearms. I'd like to make a comment about something you'd said, Buzz, and it's something that really rings true with me. My brother graduated from high school in 1970, so even into the 70s, college was um, a little bit different than it is today. He put himself through uh, an engineering degree in five years without a single student loan and without any help from my parents other than allow him to stay at home as long as he was in school. So that was the kind of contribution that we expected, and that's about what we got. Now, I chose not to go to college and and manage to have a, a really nice career, but in today's day and age, all four of my kids have college degrees, two of them have masters, but all of them, you know, left college with a huge debt. So that's just the whole mindset about today's generation and how things are done. It's been promoted that way. I'm just not sure how we're going to fix that. Well, you know, it's a, it's a culture now, and it's been going on since the, since the late 60s, I would guess, or maybe a little bit after that. But uh, this culture of of, uh, of debt, I call it the debt culture, is uh, is something my folks were raised during the Depression, so they passed that mindset on to me, and uh, and then um, we got into the debt culture, and now it's manifested itself till the country's twenty trillion dollars in debt, and nobody's really concerned about it. Um, we just keep going on and just keep borrowing more money and running the debt up. And uh, you know, someday, someday we're going to have to pay the bill. But uh, 
uh, congratulations to your brother. Boy, I'll tell you what, I'm proud of him uh, for doing what he did. Uh, I managed to get uh, to get both of my children through uh, university uh, with with no debt and uh, got them through uh, master's degrees, and they've had very successful careers at this point, which is just uh, just absolutely fabulous. And uh, I, you know, when they were born, I took that. Uh, I had that in mind. Now you know we've got to get these these folks educated so they can make a mark on the world, and and we did. So uh, I'm real proud of that, and uh, people that uh, that have done that. Well, congratulations for that. I know it's a family ordeal to to have kids in college. It's not just the kids, or it's not just the parents. It's it's a whole family thing. It's got to be a priority, and and everybody has to work towards that goal. And I think it's it's really awesome when when people can say, "Hey, look, we managed to do this." Well, um, you know, we were talking earlier. I wanted to. Uh, to talk about your your career in the Marine Corps, you said you did four years. That was uh, in the sixties. Yeah, the early sixties. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, you know, there was a time when being in the military seemed like a viable option for kids coming out of college. Uh, I mean, coming out of high school or even at the point where you know you were. It, not so much today. I mean, people don't think of that as an option to extending their education like they used to. There were a lot of kids that, you know, I don't really know what I want to do. I go in the, the service for four years and, you know, I'll grow up, I'll learn to be a man, and, and then I'll decide what I want to do with my life. But th- that doesn't seem to be an option that anybody's really looking at these days. It seems like those that choose the military just have come to the conclusion that there's nothing else they can do. Well, you know, that, uh, and, that and that's so wrong because... Uh I'll tell you, the, uh, it's a tremendous opportunity. It's a tremendous training ground. A young person that doesn't have a, that, that doesn't have a direction by the time they graduate from high school, it's uh, has got no business going off to college. They don't they don't know where they're going. They're like a Democrat. They don't know where they're going. They don't know what they're going to do when they going when they get there. They go don't know how they're going to get back. So if they were to go into the service. They could they could pick an MOS, a training uh, regiment, a, a job, if you will, and uh, and learn how to do something, a skill that would be valuable in the civilian world. And I know hundreds of people, probably thousands of people, that did that and went on to careers in aviation or went on to careers in in uh, electronics or uh, mechanics or what what have you, engineering that they learned in the service. It, and you know, we grew up sheltered. Kids grow up today sheltered. The only people they know are in their neighborhood and their immediate immediate uh, group. Where when you go in the service, you meet kids from all over the country. Uh, I, you know, you just uh, one one of the fellows was a good friend of mine. Was a uh, went on to become an undertaker. Well, I didn't know any undertakers. I didn't know what an undertaker was. And uh, but that was his family. And uh, he was from the Midwest. I met him and uh, in, in boot camp. We served together for a couple of years. And uh, it's just an example of the different folks that you meet, and you learn how to get along with people. It's just great. For a career, you, know, uh, you can't beat it. I have instructors that work for me here at Gunsight. They did uh, they did 20 years in the in the Marine Corps and uh, or the Army or whatever, and they retired. And they started a second career. A lot of them went in law enforcement. 
they did that, and uh, and they're working here part time. They teach for me, you know, maybe five, six, eight weeks a year, depending on what their employment status is, and uh, and so they've got uh, they've got great careers and uh, they've got great income from it. Well, it looks like maybe uh, you're having a little trouble here in Zev. Uh, he was he was talking about some uh, people that he knew that that got some training in the military and came out and and uh, managed to get a a good paying job as a result of the training that they got. So you know that that's a plus, and I think that's something that we really need to start uh, talking to the young kids about. It you don't necessarily have to be a college graduate to be productive in society, and the way that that society's going is that there are very many jobs that need to be filled that we just don't have people that are either qualified or willing to be qualified to to do it like the trades uh i talked to the the guy who built a house for me he said you know all of my tradesmen are in their 60s because there just aren't any young guys coming in the trades anymore there's no carpenters there's no elect young electricians they all think that they have to graduate from college and get a a white collar job in order to be productive in society and i think that's going to really come back to bite us it's already started to i think oh absolutely absolutely and and uh you know i i talk uh, like you i talk to i talk to contractors and and uh, business people today and and they're crying they're absolutely crying for skilled craftsmen uh and and uh like you say everybody wants to go to college and have a white collar job and uh somebody somebody has got to do the other stuff and and you know what i know i know so many people that started out working with their tools, ended up becoming a, a contractor, an entrepreneur, and and uh, went on living the life, living the good life. I mean, living the dream. And uh, and and they can't even spell college. But what they can do is they know how to lead people, and they know how to get along with people, and they know how to sell. And and uh, and they that stuff they learned in the street. I'm st- I'm all in favor of reintroducing some of. Some of the types of uh, training that they used to give in high school, like auto shop or or wood shop, and give some kids an opportunity to do some things with their hands. And I also think that they should really encourage trades, uh, the trade schools these days, to to get kids in, you know, interested in something that they can make a living in. That maybe after one or two years of training, rather than four or five years of college, that comes out and and you really don't. There's no job out there to to fill. Uh, when you get done. So I think that's something that we need to do as a society. You know, it's it's funny, Buzz. I didn't really mean for this conversation to get political right away. But, you know, uh, as as most of us here in Arizona know, you ran for governor. So you, you have a political ambition, or at least you think that there's a place in this world for someone who has the mindset that you do to to be productive politically. And, and I really want to thank you for that. Uh, talk a little bit about that before we get on to, to Gunsight and your relationship with Gunsight. Talk about your, your politics and, and why you ran for governor. Well, I just, uh, you know, every, everybody uh, throughout your life, you go along and you get along and, and, uh, and you, and you uh, bitch and complain about, uh, about the leadership and, and what, uh, what, what should be done, what's being done, what's not being done. And I just, I just said, well, you know, I'm just tired of this. I'm just tired of this stuff, and, uh, and I think I can do better. 
and uh, and so I, I I got out there and and, uh, and tried to do better and and uh, you know it was uh, it, it was a labor of love really it was uh, just because this country uh, Arizona has all been just great to me and my family I have I have put in. Uh, Every day, I put out my best for my country and my state, my community, and uh, I did that every day. And so I felt like, well, let's get out here and see if we can't make uh, make a difference. And, hey, Buzz, uh, it's Zev. Can you hear me? Yeah. Okay, great. Then my mic's back on. Um, that That's awesome that, that you've uh, given back in that manner, and I, I wish more people would do that. Um I wanted to ask you about gun sites. So I, I actually had um, an opportunity to go to a class back in, I think, 2003, and, and Bob Young was still there. Were, were you already, uh, you, you bought gun site, was it 1999 then? Yeah, 1999. We settled on it September 30th. So we've been okay. here for, now we're going on 18 years. And I was there for five days and uh, had a, a wonderful experience. There was a uh, world-class knife guy and a grappler guy. It was, you know, not just handgun, but a, a lot of different um, arts combined. And I remember I had been trained in Israel, and so I was using the Israeli stance for pistol work, and Bob Young had a great time coming up behind me when I didn't see him and kicking my foot in place. So that was my biggest memory at Gunsight, but it made a big impression, and I learned something. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about what led to the purchase of Gunsight and, and uh, how you turned around the, uh, the name from the, point you per- from the point when you purchased it? Well, in the, in the 70s, when Cooper started with uh, IPSC, I started shooting the IPSC on the East Coast. And uh, in 1980, I was fortunate enough to shoot in the, in the international competition at Lafayette Gun Club in uh, uh, Williamsburg, Virginia. And I met Cooper there, and I shot again in, 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 the, uh, in the competition in 81, and Cooper was there again, and he was going on about, uh, about coming to gun sight and so forth and so on. So I finally did, and uh, then I came back, and then I came back. And, but uh, over the years, you know, I was an entrepreneur, and I got, I'd get busy. I didn't have time to go, so I'd go once, and then I'd get real busy for four or five years, and then I'd go back and so forth. And so in the mid-'90s, I was coming to Gunsight, and I, I met the owner and that sort of thing, and, and uh, we struck up kind of a, a friendship, I suppose. And, uh, and that, was, that was all good. Uh, and then he, he called me up in 99, and I had just, uh, I just sold my, my last of my interest in the sailor industry. Uh, and he called me up a few months later. Of course, my wife, by that time, she was ready to run me off because uh, I wasn't working. And so uh, she said, yeah, why don't you go to Arizona and see what that looks like? So I did. And uh, we came out here and we played with the numbers and tried to figure out how we're going to make it work. And because uh, I didn't need something to spend money on, but I needed something new to develop. And uh, I'd had I'd had many years of doing that, so uh, we we struck a deal, and and uh, and and it was so tenuous. The thing, uh, uh, Kelly, it was, it was funny. The deal was so tenuous, uh, and I wasn't going to give an inch. Uh, I had read uh, Donald Trump's book, The Art of the Deal, in 1988. I'd made a lot of deals since then. 
And let me tell you something. That guy knew what he was talking about when he wrote the book, as he does today. He still knows what he's talking about. But uh, we so uh, we finally settled on a, on a, on a uh, on a figure, and, and uh, he went away, and I paid his bills, and, and uh, then the real work started. And it's taken us uh, taken us quite a while, but uh, I've had some good help over the years, some tremendous help. We've got a tremendous instructor cadre. I still have instructors that started out with Cooper in the '70s. Still have those guys here, and. Uh, and they're still teaching, and we still maintain, you know, the modern technique of the pistol, the Cooper Doctrine, if you will. And I think that's what's been a success, has just been stay focused on the target, which is deliver a quality product to deserving citizens, and uh, they will respond, and they have. Yeah, you know, Jeff Cooper was a, a real... Um solid guy he believed what he believed he taught what he believed and if you didn't believe what he believed he didn't believe in what you believed uh, i don't know if that makes any sense but it's basically saying if you didn't do it jeff's way it wasn't the right way but but jeff had a great background and really um put together a, a great product with gunsight now i can say from being around and, and paying attention there was a time between 91 and 99, and 99 happens to be when you purchased it, That and 91 was when Jeff actually left. It didn't have that reputation that it, it started to diminish some, and they even got to the point where people were referring to which which class did you go to? Was it pre-91 or was it post-91? Because there's there was a difference in the quality of the school. But you've managed since you purchased it to get back to that same um, really aggressive this is the best we can possibly do and people really have come to appreciate Gunsight post Bud Mills as much as they did with the Jeff Cooper era. Well, it, uh, uh, that, that's very kind of you to say that. We work really hard to maintain uh, to maintain the you know the the Cooper doctrine, and uh, of course Mrs. Cooper's still here, and uh, she's 97 this month, this week, and uh, and she's still living in the house and still has uh, the 250 classes come over every Friday afternoon. She's a fabulous uh, fabulous woman, and and. Uh, when you're in the area, you need to stop by and say hello to her. Well, I'd like to wish her a happy birthday. That's terrific. You know, anyone that's had uh, a long, productive life like she has, it's, it's great. Um, and I'll make sure that the next time I'm up north, I'll stop by. Um, so uh, what was it that, that drove you to, uh, and I know it was a business opportunity, and you looked at it from a financial standpoint. You, you made a deal. I remember someone telling me, the only way you can ever make a good deal, and it doesn't matter whether it's on a used car, a new car, a, a business, or anything, is if you're willing to walk away if you if it does the deal doesn't meet your needs. And for me, sometimes I, that's really hard for me to do because I decide I want something, and, and then all reason goes out the window, and, and I usually probably don't drive a very hard bargain but um what was it that about the school other than your love of shooting that that made you think that this was a good business well it it's um it, it was not necessarily a good business but it was a, a, a certainly a worthwhile endeavor and that is because i believed 
I believed in, in the modern technique of the pistol. I believed in what Jeff Cooper did. I believed in his teaching. And uh, to, to, just as a point in that, my friend uh, Jerry Boykin, who's a retired Army three-star general, he, he was the guy charged with standing up Delta Force. And he told me, we had, we had quite, quite a number of conversations, but one I remember particularly was that he said, you know, when we stood up Delta, he said, big army didn't know anything except long guns. He said, and our, our charge was, our charter was going to be a lot of close work, a lot of pistol work. And he said, we didn't have anybody that knew about pistols. He said, I'd read a Cooper. I'd heard of it. So I went out there and I met, I met Jeff Cooper. And he said, that was the place we trained all of our Delta operators in the beginning to, to, to learn about pistols. We're trained at gunsight. He said, and, and he said, without gunsight, we wouldn't be where we are today. And so I just knew that that philosophy, that that modern technique of the pistol, that that, that organization of instructors had to be carried forward. And it wasn't going to be if somebody else uh, made the deal that, uh, to, to take over gunsight. I'm really glad you did, Buzz, because I think there's a place in society for gunsight, for teaching good um, training habits and, and getting a lot of people educated, and not just in the military, but a, a lot of civilians. You know, I, I hate to tell you this, but our time's up. Like I said, remember that two hours, it goes like 25 minutes, and sometimes that seems like about 10. So, uh, unfortunately, we're at the end of this segment, and we're going to have to uh, take a commercial break. But I want to thank you for being on. Thanks for everything you do. Thanks for your military service, and, and thanks for all of the work that you do with, with the modern military. All right. Well, thank you so much, uh, Kelly. I appreciate it. And to all the vets out there listening, have a great Memorial Day. We're thinking of you. Thanks, buddy. Appreciate it. Now, right, I want now. All, of, all of our listeners to stay tuned for the next couple of minutes while we do a commercial break, and we'll be right back. Looking for exciting video content live and on demand? Visit www.voiceamerica.tv for exclusive content you just can't find anywhere else. That's voiceamerica.tv. Tune in now. For over 40 years, Macmillan USA has been at the leading edge of the gunstock industry. The company was born out of the desire to improve and perfect form, function, and precision with every one of their premium fiberglass stocks. From tactical to hunting to competitive shooting, Macmillan stocks are designed to dominate. Their signature three-way adjustable butt plates, adjustable cheek pieces, rail mounts, and adapters provide a versatile platform built on performance. Over 65 custom finishes are available, ranging from solid colors to camouflage. Check out the Macmillan website for hundreds of stocks available for immediate delivery. And for those wanting something more specialized, call the knowledgeable and friendly staff at Macmillan for a complete list of options at 877-365-6148 or visit MacmillanUSA.com. Again, that's 877-365-6148 or visit MacmillanUSA.com. 
We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all our show archives on demand. All from your iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. Your internet flagship station for sports, Voice America Sports. You are listening to Taking Stock with Kelly McMillan. Now back to the show. Well, thanks for sticking around. I apologize for any technical issues we've been having. I'm not sure what's happening with my soundboard, but uh, apparently we're losing uh, audio occasionally, and I apologize for that. If if you uh, don't hear anything coming through um, as you're listening live, just remember that we'll get that taken care of as, as fast as we can and, and get back to you. So what I'd like to do right now is for all of our live listeners, I'm going to give you the Q to email me at k.mcmillan at mcmillanusa.com. And as I discussed earlier in the show, the first four people to email me will receive uh, some Macmillan um, promotional items. So you can email me now, and then uh, later in the show we'll announce who, who the winners are going to be. Okay. Now I've got a guy on the on the show that has um, been an interesting guy to know. Um, I actually met him because um, I've done business with his wife for a number of years. Uh, Karen Levine has worked for a number of publishing companies and has handled my account uh, for these companies over the last 20 years. And, and through Karen, I've gotten to know Scott. And I was always intrigued with Scott because of his association with the Secret Service. But first off, Scott, I'd like to welcome you to the show. Thanks for being on. My pleasure, Kelly. Thank you. Why don't you give us a little background, uh, tell us where you grew up, um, where you went to school, how you ended up uh, g- going to work for the Secret Service. Sure, my pleasure. So uh, I was a uh, 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 born and raised in New Jersey, uh, grew up in West Orange, New Jersey, which is a town of about 50,000 people. And uh, I, I was able to look at the Twin Towers from my high school classroom. And uh, at a young age, for some reason, maybe I was sparked by the Kennedy assassination, I uh, decided I want to be a Secret Service agent. And actually wrote a letter to the director, and somebody must have not had too much to do that day. And they actually responded and said, hey, be a good boy, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, I, I kind of I held to that. And uh, I ended up becoming a uh, 20-year-old cop in West Orange in 1978. But I always wanted to be a Secret Service agent. And then, uh, sadly, John Hinckley uh, shot the president in 81 in March. And uh, I had applied and, uh, in December of 83. Uh, December 12th uh, was my entrance on duty date, my EOD date, which happened to be Frank Sinatra's dress room, which I had some uh, subsequent encounters with that were uh, pretty interesting. But, um, yeah, it was my lifelong dream to become an agent, and I had a great career. Uh, I was with them um, until '04, a little over 20 years. Uh, Was a victim in the 93 bombing, almost killed, closest survivor, testified against Ramsey Yosef in 95, and then... uh, was got lucky during 9-11. I was in Midtown waiting for the uh, Prime Minister of uh, uh, Cyprus to come in when uh, they got diverted and we were 
we were we were the only show in town with 16 army armed agents and vehicles. Uh, so for the next six weeks, stayed in uh, Manhattan and uh, brought in the world's leaders to uh, grieve and, uh, and and see the uh, the sad situation down at uh, at the World Trade. Well, thanks for your service and thanks for being uh, there in the time of need for almost everybody in that area. Uh, most people think about the Secret Service, they think of the Presidential Guard because they're the guys that they see whenever the president appears somewhere, the, the guys in the suits with the uh, earphones in their their uh, ears. Uh, th- that's the only thing they know about the Secret Service. But there's a lot that the Secret Service does. Can you kind of give us an overview of the Secret Service in general and then talk specifically about you know the kinds of stuff that you were taxed with? Sure, sure. So... Uh you know, in 1983, uh, the, the service comprised up about uh, about 1,400 agents uh, worldwide, and now they're at about uh, 3,100, down from 3,300. Uh, we've been having some attrition problems. I'm actually the director of the former Agents Association, which is uh, keeps me close to the agency. And uh, for good, bad, ugly, uh, we, we hope we're going to survive uh, moving forward. But uh, Secret Service started in 1865 under Lincoln. Uh, he actually proclaimed us to be the uh, the uh, protectors of the counterfeit uh, of the currency system because of the uh, advent of uh, a horrific uh, amount of counterfeiting of, of uh, currency. And uh, that night he was shot and killed. So uh, uh, subsequent to that, after a couple more assassination attempts, they charged the Secret Service with the uh, current day uh, uh, you know, uh, when you see them on television and see the president, vice president, heads of state, we protect. But, you know, a lot of people don't understand, especially when we used to come in the door uh, and raid a place uh, for uh, credit card fraud or uh, uh, counterfeiting or the passing of illegal U.S. savings bonds or, or even treasury checks. When I first came on, uh, there was no direct deposit and uh, uh, they were taking they were stealing the treasury checks that were meant to go for pensioners. Uh, or um, Social Security disability, et cetera. And uh, so we were charged with uh, locking the people up that uh, stole the checks or counterfeited the checks, et cetera. So, and then subsequent to that, uh, we were uh, charged with credit card fraud, credit card counterfeiting to thwart the uh, advent of, of uh, credit card uh, um, uh, illegal crimes on under USC 1029. And then after that, uh, we were charged with uh, stopping electronic crimes uh, with the advent of the uh, Internet. So there's a, there's a number of ECTFs, electronic crime task forces around the country that, that, are, that are geared up pretty well and guys, are, guys and gals are really smart uh, techno, tech, technically and uh, they're able to uh, help with missing and exploited children and also help uh, in, um, in uh, uh, sex trafficking and also obviously uh, financial crimes. So financial crimes on the criminal side and uh, protection of world's leaders uh, heads of state, foreign dignitaries are, are kind of the, uh, the the two baskets. So uh, one is one is uh, criminal investigation, the other one is protection. And and a good criminal investigator uh, makes a good protection agent because it's all about details, flexibility, and uh, and adaptability. In that you know there's short notice travel and there's uh, a lot of responsibility put on even young agents uh, uh, to do advance work uh, from site advance to lead advance to transportation advance. And then on the other side of it is that's it's really, really grown with the advent of, of email. Uh, we used to get letter threats against our protectees, and subsequent to that, when emails start rocking, you know, I think the first year or so, we knocked down doors 
And uh, 14-year-old pimply kids were behind the door saying, well, I just wanted to see if you guys would come if I said I'm going to kill the president. And yes, we did. We came out. So uh, things have changed, but uh, we've, we've tried to manage them. And then, and then the second component of the Secret Service is the Uniform Division branch uh, that are uh, basically police officers in metropolitan D.C., and they supplement our needs when we're um, uh, magging. Uh, people uh, with handheld mags and, uh, and walk-through magnetometers at different events around the world. And, uh, and at home, they're uh, the outer perimeter uh, protecting the White House. So the Secret Service does a lot more than anybody realizes they do. I'm, I'm absolutely certain because I just learned a lot myself. And I was wondering if you're going to get to the electronic part since there's so many um, financial transactions taking place electronically nowadays. It just makes sense that the Secret Service would be involved with that as well. Yeah, correct. You know, it's, um, it's really grown. Obviously, uh, you know, in, in, in the day, uh, everybody thought of a Secret Service agent. In fact, I, you know, as, as, as I was a cop uh, and then eventually became a regional recruiter, I started bringing people on board with uh, electronic crime experience or, uh, or computer experience that could be utilized to thwart electronic crimes. And um, so it was funny uh, going to different job fairs around the, around the nation. We'd look for guys and gals that had this computer experience. And then we'd have to explain to them, well, not only are you going to investigate these crimes and try to thwart these crimes, but you're going to be the same person putting handcuffs on a person and, you know, knocking a door down on a search and arrest warrant. So sometimes we, we you know, the, 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 we had them all the way through to the end where they had a handcuff and, and uh, you know, point a gun at somebody. And they're like, no, 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 we're going to go work for Apple or Facebook. We don't want to deal with that. But we got a lot of guys and gals that had a technology background that make great criminal investigators. And also, you know, the, the dual responsibility, you have to, you know, do your protection time as well. But, um it's amazing what some of these guys and girls can, uh, uh, and we've contributed to other uh, federal, foreign, and uh, and state, local agencies on crimes that they just can't solve. And our, our electronic guys are, are, and our technical security division is so uh, so so brilliant in uh, re, you know uh, recovery of computers that uh, we're able to solve a lot more crimes than we'd ever done just hey, by Scott, it's up, uh, by physical evidence. Um, Zeb was wanting to ask you a question. Uh, Scott, can you hear him? Yes, sir. Okay, my first question is, did I hear you correctly in that the very day that President Lincoln created the agency's task uh, for counterfeiting, it was that night that he was assassinated? Correct, yes. That's an amazing piece of history I didn't know. Uh, there's yeah. another thing I wanted to ask you, though. In our emails and in our talking back and forth, I think I might have detected that you own a diner as well. Is that correct? <laughs> yeah, that is correct. That is correct, yeah. Uh, my, my dad, uh, growing up, uh, my, my affinity for police officers was uh, my dad owned a candy store called the Valley Sweet Shop. And as a five-year-old kid, I used to help slide in the papers on Sunday morning. And, and many other mornings, and um, especially in the summer. And I used to see the police officers coming in saying, you know, I knew I wanted to be a cop, knew I wanted to be a Secret Service agent. And later on in life, kidding around, I said, Dad, why didn't you introduce me to the guys and gals that bought Barron's in the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal, and I could have been somebody. But I don't, I don't regret my career. But what happened was um, I had been the hotel coordinator for uh, quite a while, uh, kind of like a travel agent with a gun for a time. And uh, I made a dear friend who ran uh, nine hotels for uh, a Holocaust survivor, and uh, we used to hang at a diner. And when that diner's lease was going, uh, finishing because they were taking the building over to make a high-rise like everything else in Manhattan, 
my buddy found a secondary place that uh, could fit a diner. We built it, we bought it, and uh, we're still there. So uh, it's a good place. Well, for folks who aren't from the uh, the East Coast and have never experienced sitting in a real New Jersey diner <laughs> right. uh, and have all the delicacies there uh, or watch The Sopranos and lived it vicariously, can you tell us the name <laughs> of the diner so we can come and visit? Sure. Yeah, sure. Three, Theater Row Diner, 424 West 42nd Street between 9th and 10th Avenue, right in the heart of Midtown. And that's Manhattan, right? That's New York City, Manhattan. Yeah, awesome. I've actually eaten there. It's a great place, and I highly recommend all of our listeners to check it out when they get to New York. It's it's just a great place. And, Thanks, you know, Billy. great food, too. For sure. So now we've got past that. I want to back up a little bit. You, what? It seems like an agent, when the, you know, when you think of... Um, Secret Service agents, you see the the people that are tasked to either the president, vice president, secretary of state, and that crew, and maybe I just learned this from the movies and it's not accurate, it seems to stay with those people for a length of time. Is that pretty much correct? Let let me correct you first. The secretary of state uh, is a unique, uh, the, the Department of State, DSS, uh, security service. So the Department of State protects uh, our our Secretary of State, um, and and uh, it, the only uh, exception to that was under Henry Kissinger. He he didn't he didn't want the DSS. He wanted the Secret Service. So we ended up protecting him. But um, it, it, DSS is a great group of guys and gals. And actually, in my current business, uh, we provide protection. Uh, we won the, the uh, RFP for uh, armed guarding at, at a number of U.S. Uh, uh, embassies and, and consulates, one being Brazil, uh, which uh, which uh, uh, garnered us a lot of business during the World Cup. But uh, we have, we've got about 900 armed uh, uh, exec, uh, protection types in Brazil protecting our interests. Uh, and, and just like Benghazi, you know, they had this, the same type of people at Benghazi, sadly, who, uh, who passed away and perished. But, yeah, so the, the PPD or VPPD, Presidential Protection Division or the Vice Presidential Protection Division, those guys and gals, it's changed through the years. It used to be a three-year because it's such a tough assignment, and there's so much travel and, and so much pressure uh, doing these advances and actually game day. But uh, now it's a five-year term. So, uh, you know, my, I went, during my career, it was a 20-year career now. Subsequent to uh, 1984, when the government changed their pension system, the guys and gals got to do 25 years or age 50. So it's a low haul. Those last five years are really tough on, on, the, on the folks, and I think that's why we've had some, some, some major problems in the morale and in the, uh, the functionality of the Secret Service. But at any rate, the details, per se, PP and VP, are now five-year stints, and that changes depending on, on uh, the agent population and the, uh, uh, the needs of the Secret Service. So that could change at any time. But um, uh, generally speaking, there are some that opt out to stay in a field office, and then the majority of the, of the, of the population uh, generally does a large field office, a detail, a headquarters assignment, whether it's intelligence division or uh, uh, dignitary protection division or forensic services division. There's a lot of different uh, special specialties in headquarters, liaison, government affairs, etc. And then they go back to the kind of the field office of their choice, or they go to training before that and then go to the field office of their choice. So, as a, a Secret Service agent, you you get tasked throughout your career, especially now. I remember when you retired, and I, did you say you started in '83? 
Yeah, so I started in 83, and I was able to retire in uh, 04 uh, with uh, about 20 and a half. It sure doesn't seem like that long ago, but that just is an indication of how long we've known each other. So that's, that, right. that's, that's great. That's really, really cool. Um, so you, you did just a little over 20 years. And in your career, how many different types of assignments did, did you have? Well, I was kind of unique because um, uh, I, my, <laughs> my first wife was a British Olympic ice skater, and uh, she uh, did very well in teaching uh, uh, kids, uh, kids and adults had to ice skate, so uh, there was no impetus for me financially to go down below to the head to headquarters. Although uh, many, many of the uh, assistant directors and deputy directors wanted me to, because I was kind of known as the one eight hundred favors guy. I was the guy to go to if you needed something, and I think it helped me in my subsequent career in sales because I had a lot of contacts. But I always, I always say I use my powers for good, and uh, a lot of, lot of, lot of charitable endeavors as well. But um, the um, uh, my career, my career was 20 years in New York City, which is kind of unheard of. I think I was the second guy to do that uh, and still get promoted in the end. But um, I, I basically was in, uh, in a, uh, a checks forgery squad as a newbie agent going out and uh, thwarting the, the passing of treasury checks and then went into a credit card fraud squad for about three years and uh, then went into the protection squad, uh, which I really enjoyed. I, I enjoyed that side of the house. You know, I'd been a cop for six years, and I kind of uh, arrested and and, uh, and and you know got that out of my blood. And uh, I enjoyed it in the service, but uh, I enjoyed protection more. It was uh, to me, it was a, more of a, a gentlemanly challenge, uh, and it also got me to travel the world. So uh, I was in the protection squad for about four years, about forty-eight months, and then uh, moved over to the protect protective intelligence squad, which was uh, basically dealing with. Uh, Crazy people. <laughs> so uh, that was pretty interesting. Any any threats uh, that came in uh, or happened during a protection assignment, we'd be the ones to stay and interview. And the theory of protection is to sound off, cover, and evacuate. So if you had a, if you had a protectee and some EDP, emotionally disturbed person, you know, started a, a ruckus, we'd be the ones to stay with the police and make sure that they were, you know, held and uh, and then it subsequently interviewed to see if they were going to be a, a, a threat. Uh, if they were a real threat then, and if they possess a, a threat moving forward. And uh, we also had to do some babysitting in that squad where uh, some of the people that had been confirmed, or usually ones that got out of jail, if they were in district when we moved in with a protectee, president or vice president only, uh, we'd have to babysit them either covertly or overtly uh, in the district. So there was some, some uh, funny stories about uh, baby, basically babysitting these folks from wheels, wheels down to wheels up. Uh, and uh, some interesting people. but um, And then after that, uh, I went into the counterfeiting squad. Uh, did about three and a half years there. Uh, some real interesting organized crime cases and wiretaps uh, out of that one. And um, finished the career with a promotion in uh, SI uh, squad, special investigations, where we uh, uh, did a lot of the backgrounds of uh, incoming employees, agents, and clerical folks, even student interns. And... Uh, and uh, uh, did the five-year updates of our current aging population. So, uh, uh, and that 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 revolved around the same time I was uh, the, it was from nine eleven until I retired in four. Well, if I remember correctly, just shortly after you retired, you started a security business. Isn't that right? I actually went into a, a friend's business, um, and and it was funny. I I was in my fifteenth year in the in Seven World Trade. Phone rang and the guy said, "Hey, I'm Eddie Silverman. I'm the CEO of uh, SOS Security." And a mutual friend of ours, Alan Mizell, said, "Hey, you're ready to retire." And I said, "Well, Eddie, I have five years to go." And 
he said, well, I'd like to meet you. So we met, and he's a hell of a guy, a dynamic guy, University of Maryland, running scholarship, 33 marathons, you know, still, still at 66 today, can run a five-minute mile. And uh, I said, Eddie, I'm, I'm set to go to American Express. The former special agent in charge of New York, Mick Shindrani, uh, was over at American Express as the chief security officer. And uh, obviously, I was his assistant in the Secret Service. He wanted me back as his assistant over at Amex. But Eddie persevered, and uh, in the 16th year, he called me and said four, uh, four to go, and then three and two and one. And it was like that, that uh, meatloaf song, what's it going to be, boy? And uh, thankfully, I picked SOS uh, because it's been a real success, and we've grown the business. We don't, have any, we don't do any advertising. We don't, uh, I'm the only quasi-sales guy, uh, along with my CEO, and we grew the company from about $30 million to a quarter billion. And we're now the uh, fifth largest company in the country, so it's uh, it's been a good run. And uh, and and he's a very big fan of the Secret Service. We've hired a number of agents, and uh, we and he's a real good supporter and contributor to my former agents association. We do a conference every year around the country. Well, that's terrific, and congratulations on on picking a great place to work and uh, you know being such a big oh, sure. influence. What um, what kind of security? So we, we run the gamut. You know, when I first started, uh, Lehman Brothers was alive, and uh, I was able to, uh, I, 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 I kind of split half of their contract with another friend of mine who went to another company. So I was able to pick up $4 million in guarding, basically suit and tie concierge guarding uh, at, at, for access at uh, all the major office buildings uh, around the United States for Lehman Brothers. And when I started, we were basically a tri-state company, and then I started bringing in national accounts. So the, uh, the CFO, now president of the company, had the foresight to start building an infrastructure around the United States. And, um, and my second client was Christian Dior, 55 stores across the country, and we weren't really prepared for it. So I, I, I'd be honest to tell you it was a success from the start, because it wasn't, but it was a great learning experience because we failed so often. And I, and I swore to Eddie that I was sick of being on a beeper for 20 years and was looking forward to a little calmer life. And uh, in the beginning, it wasn't because there was a lot of problems. But we really kind of perfected retail security, which is tough because it's not a face-to-face 24-7 security. It's, it's a garden. Uh, L.A. wakes up and says, should I ski or should I stand for eight hours? And, you know, sometimes it's a tough decision. So, uh, I'm sorry, uh, uh, surf, not ski. Uh, but I guess depending on where it's California. But um, at any rate, then we picked up a lot of different verticals. As I mentioned, the uh, U.S. Uh, State Department contracts for uh, the embassies and consulates have been great, and get great, you know, garnered us international presence. Uh, and 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 in in uh, in, in uh, conjunction with that, we picked up a ton of executive protection work. Uh, for instance, just at the World Cup, I ended up uh, doing Ken Chenault from Amex and plus twenty two guests, and uh, it was crazy down there. But, but it's funny uh, after thirty years. My former boss, who, was, who I mentioned was the chief security officer for American Express, we're in a, in a vehicle coming in from um, uh, the airport in Rio, and it was 12 miles, and it was going to take four hours because of the infrastructure. And uh, so my, my driver and, and the pastor guy, both arms, said, hey, don't drink too much coffee because it's going to be a long one. And about midway through, after we, you know, there was nothing else to talk about, so we were on our phones, and all of a sudden we uh, ended up getting carjacked. It was... Uh, eight guys with baseball bats looking to kill us. And I looked at my friend Mick and said, this is how it ends. <laughs> you know, we have his iPhones. But, but luckily, the two drivers pulled out their forty calibers and uh, uh, basically in Portuguese said, uh, we'll shoot you through the windshield. And four guys ran. The other four said, hey, it's cool. You know, guns, guns beat sticks. Guns beat sticks. And they calmly walked away, and we survived and thrived. But uh, so that was pretty funny. But uh, we, uh, we do a lot of... Um, 
uh, event security for uh, like uh, Viacom, TV shoots, uh, Live Nation, uh, uh, you know, Bruce Springsteen. Well, not Bruce, but uh, uh, Katy Perry and, uh, and uh, Bono and, uh, um, and uh, you know, every, every high-end uh, concert venue. Uh, we usually handle the inner perimeter and or the EP, executive protection of, of the principal. So uh, be it from Beyonce to Lady Gaga, Katy Perry, that kind of thing. Um, so it runs the gamut. I think that's the part that I remembered the most. You're talking about, uh, you know, the high-profile entertainers and stuff that you've you've had to provide security for, and you know, everybody thinks that's a real glamorous thing, but it can be real tedious, I'm sure. Well, you know, it could be tedious, and having done it for 20 years and loving it, um, I'll tell you, at, 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 I retired at 46, and. Um, you know, past 50, standing for 12 hours uh, is, is not what it used to be. And uh, so, so it's, uh, I'm happier to have other people do that and, uh, and, 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 and me uh, selfishly taking clients to the concert and watching instead of standing. So, uh, uh, but but it, it, is re- it is rewarding. And, it, you know, it, as you said, it does look glamorous and it is a nice part of the business, uh, especially when you can pay back clients and take them to a nice event like that yeah so you know i know how you you feel when you're talking about standing because i think that's probably the thing that bothers me the most now as i've gotten older i'm i'm 62 now and when i go to the shot show standing in the booth is much more difficult than it is if i were walking the the show floor as long as i can keep moving i'm fine but standing is a, a problem it is a problem it's tough you know and and you know i remember I, uh, two of the things I'm proudest of, I think, in my career, uh, when I was, I was, I forgot to mention that I was chief of staff to the agent in charge, who happened to be Mick Shendrani, who went to, went to Amex, you know, f- figure that out. You know, the guy liked my skills and, and skill set. But two of the things that I did as projects for Mick was entertaining the congressional delegation and trying to tell them, uh, we, ha- we had a max out overtime policy where we would max out biweekly and you could easily, after 40, if you were, let's say you were a GS-13, and after 55 hours, you couldn't make any overtime over 40. So you got 15 hours of overtime, and you might work 70, 80 hours in those two-week periods. So I was able to show this congressional delegation how you could have agent Sony, you could have technology, you could have the best access control systems, but you still need feet. And those feet are in the form of special agents that, uh, you know, carry handguns and, and other weapons. And they're still necessary to stop an assassination attempt. So when I walk them through the Waldorf or walk them through a Radio City music hall to show them what kind of manpower is needed, they got it and they actually made it a, uh, an annual cap. And it, it basically, uh, and, 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 you know, underpaid overwork, but I'm not going to cry, man. You got a U.S. military out there for 15 years killing themselves. It's, it's, it's very sad and disheartening, but it's necessary, I guess, in certain areas of the world. But well, I don't want to get up uh, on it. I, I really Sorry. want to thank you for your service. Uh, you know, people thank everybody for their military service, but I feel as strongly about the people who choose to, to be in law enforcement and, and especially the work that you've done. It's been great having you on the show. Unfortunately, thank we're out know. of time. I want to thank you for being here. Say hi to Karen for me. And uh, next time I'm in New York, we'll, we'll get together and, and have lunch at your diner. My treat. My pleasure. Uh, Thanks, Kelly. All the best, everyone. Thanks. Thanks. Bye-bye. Once again, we've come to the end of another great show. I'd like to thank our listeners for spending their valuable time with us. Remember, we'll be here next Friday on Voice America Sports Channel for another exciting episode of Taking Stock with Kelly McMillan. You know, it's going to be great around here. uh, Beautiful weather. I'm going to get outside, probably do some shooting this weekend. 
See y'all next week. Thank you for tuning in to Taking Stock with Kelly McMillan. Be sure to come back for more next Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time at 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Sports Channel. The weekend is here. Enjoy yourself. We'll talk again next week.